Chapter 15 of Mildred at Home by Martha Finley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Calamity is man's true touchstone. In their retreat after the attack upon the immigrant train to which Rupert and Don belonged, the Indians passed again over the ground where they had shot down the former. He still lay motionless and insensible, just as he had fallen from his horse. Several of the savages dismounted and stood over him, one drawing a scalping knife from his belt and with the other hand seizing Rupert by the hair. At that instant consciousness returned. Rupert opened his eyes and seeing the gleaming knife lifted high in the air, sent up a swift but silent cry to God for help. The Indian's hold upon his hair suddenly relaxed and the knife was returned to his belt. He had changed his mind as he gave his companions to understand in a few words quite unintelligible to Rupert, who was indeed again fast losing consciousness. An answering sentence or two came indistinctly to his ear as sounds from the far distance. Then he knew nothing more for a time. How long he could not tell, but on recovering consciousness he found himself strapped to the back of an Indian pony, which was slowly toiling up a steep ascent a narrow path winding round a mountain. On the right was a rocky wall, on the left was a sheer descent of many hundred feet. Rupert turned, dizzy, sick, and faint, as he caught a glimpse of the frightful precipice, the foaming stream and jagged rocks at its base, and but for the thongs that bound him firmly to the back of his steed, he must inevitably have fallen and been dashed to pieces upon them. He could not in that first moment remember what had befallen him, and he called in a faint voice upon his brother, Don, where are we? No reply, and he called again, more faintly than before, for he was very weak from pain and loss of blood. Don, Don, an Indian's ugh, and a few words in an unknown tongue answered him from the rear. The sounds were guttural and harsh and seemed to him to command silence. Instantly he comprehended that he was a prisoner and in whose hands. He was sorely wounded, too, for every movement of his pony gave him exquisite pain. And now memory recalled the events of the afternoon, the chase, the stinging shot, the fall from his horse, then the waking as from a dream to feel the grasp upon his hair and see the scalping knife held aloft in the air and just ready to descend upon his devoted head. Question upon question crowded upon his mind. Where were his late companions, Morton and Smith? Were they killed? Were they prisoners like himself, or had they escaped? Had the train been attacked, and if so, what was the result? Oh, above all, where was Don, the younger brother, over whom he was to have watched with parental care? He would have defended Don's life and liberty with his own. But alas, the opportunity was denied him. He thought of his own probable fate. What was there to expect but torture and death? He remembered to have read that the Indians sometimes carried a prisoner a long distance, that the rest of their tribe might share the delight of witnessing his dying torments. Rupert shuddered at the thought that this was the fate reserved for him and feeling very weak, he half hoped he might die on the way to meet it. Silently he lifted up his heart in prayer to God for help and succor in this, his sore extremity, 
and that the consolations of God might not be small to the dear ones at home, especially the tender mother, when the news of his sad fate should reach them. The last gleams of the setting sun lighted up the lofty pathway they were pursuing, but down in that deep valley at the foot of the mountain it was already growing dark. He could see into its depths as he lay with his cheek resting on the neck of the pony, and turning his head, the wall of rock towering on the other side came into view. He was bound hand and foot and could lift only his head. He seemed to have hardly strength for that, but anxious to learn the number of his captors and whether he was the only prisoner he made an effort, feebly lifted it and glanced before and behind him. He could only see that there were several mounted Indians ahead and one or more behind him, all fearsome in war paint and feathers. There might be many more at each end of the line, for they were traveling single file along the narrow winding path. But only a small portion of it came within the line of his vision. And there might be other prisoners, though he saw none. Even that slight exertion had exhausted him. His head dropped, and again pain of body and distress of mind were forgotten in a long and death-like swoon. It was night, lighted only by the stars and the path winding downward, when again he revived for a few moments, shivering and benumbed with cold, weak and faint with hunger and loss of blood, and suffering greatly from the pain of his wounds. He heard no sound but the rush of a mountain torrent and the clatter of the horse's hooves over the stony way. He had scarcely more than noted these things when again his senses forsook him. When next he revived, two of his captors were busy undoing the rope that made him fast to the pony, which was standing stock still on level ground, only a few feet from a fire of brushwood that sent up flame and smoke and blazed and crackled with a cheery sound which spoke of warmth for benumbed limbs, while some venison and trout broiling on the coals gave out a savory smell. Several warriors were grouped about the fire, one giving particular attention to the cooking the others lounging in picturesque and restful attitudes on the grass. Rupert was quickly lifted from the pony and laid on the grass beside them with his feet to the fire. Then the cords were taken from his wrist and a bit of smoking venison put into his hand. He devoured it ravenously, and his hunger, appeased, presently fell into a deep sleep, having first committed himself and dear ones to the care and protection of that god who is everywhere present and almighty to defend and save. His wounds had been rudely bound up in a way to staunch the flow of blood, it being the desire of his captors to keep him alive, at least for a time. More mercifully disposed than they oftentimes are, and knowing that he was too weak for flight, they left him unbound through the night, merely fastening a cord around each arm and securing the other end to the arm of a stout warrior one on whom lay on each side of the prisoner. Rupert had noted as they laid him down that no other white man was in sight. This gave him hope that the rest had escaped, yet he could not know that it was not by death, so the discovery brought small relief to his anxiety of mind on their account. Warning found him feverish and ill, his wounds very painful, but at an early hour the Indians resumed their line of march with him in the midst strapped to the pony as before. It was a terrible journey, climbing steep ascents, creeping along narrow ledges of rock, where a single false step 
would have sent them down hundreds of feet to be dashed to pieces upon the sharp points of the rocks below. Now they descended by paths as steep, narrow, and dangerous as those by which they had ascended, and forded streams so deep and swift that the helpless, hapless prisoner was in imminent danger of drowning. He, poor fellow, was too ill to note the direction in which they were traveling, though he had a vague idea that it was in the main southwesterly. Besides the difficulties and dangers of the way, he suffered intensely from the pain of his wounds, and often from intolerable thirst. One day he woke as from a troubled sleep to find himself lying on a bearskin in an Indian wigwam, a young girl sitting beside him embroidering a moccasin. Their eyes met, and hers, large, soft, and dark as those of a gazelle, lighted up with a pleased surprise. You are better, senor, she said, in low, musical tones and in the Spanish tongue. Rupert understood her, for he was fond of the languages, and had gained a good knowledge of Spanish from Dr. Landreth, who had learned to speak it fluently during his long sojourn in South America. Yes, he said faintly in that tongue, and you have been my kind nurse. It has been happiness to care for the weak and wounded stranger, she said in her liquid tones though I little thought that he could speak to me in my own language. For you are not my countryman, senor. Your face is too fair. I am from the United States, he replied. And you, fair lady? I am a Mexican, a captive among the Indians like yourself, was the mournful reply, tears gathering in her beautiful eyes. His voice was touched with sympathy, and he was opening his lips to express it. But with playful authority she bid him be quiet and not waste his feeble strength in talk. Then she brought him food and drink prepared by her own fair hands, and she fed him too, for he had scarce strength to feed himself. Directly his hunger was satisfied, and he fell asleep again. When again he woke it was night, the stars were shining in the sky, as he could see through the opening in the top of the wigwam left for the escape of smoke and by their glimmer he could faintly perceive the outlines of dusky forms lying on all sides of him, their quietude and the sound of their breathing, telling that they slept. The impulse came strongly upon him to rise and flee. Captivity was so dreadful, liberty so sweet. And it might be that, though so strangely spared up to this point, torture and death were yet to be his portion if he remained. He started up, but only to fall back again in utter exhaustion. He could do nothing to save himself, and there was no earthly helper near. But sweetly to his mind came the opening verse of the 46th Psalm. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will we not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea and silently committing himself and loved ones all so far distant to the care of that almighty friend, he fell asleep again. He was quite alone when next he woke, and it was broad daylight, for a bright sunbeam had found its way through the opening in the roof and laid bare to his view the whole interior of the wigwam, with all its filth and lack of the comforts of civilized life. All was silent within, but from without came the merry shouts and laughter of the Indian children at play. Presently, one pushed aside the curtain of skins that served as a door, 
and a pair of wild black eyes stared Rupert in the face for a moment. Then the curtain fell, and soft, swift retreating footfalls came faintly to his ear. Not many minutes had passed when it was again drawn aside, and Juanita, the Mexican girl, he had seen the day before, stepped within, dropping it behind her. Her sweet, though melancholy smile seemed to light up the forlorn hut as she bade Rupert good morning in her liquid tones using the Spanish tongue as before, and asked if he could eat the morsel she had brought. Alas, it was not such a breakfast as would have been served him in his own faraway home. It was a broiled fish, hot from the coals, laid upon a bit of bark and covered with green oak leaves in lieu of a napkin. He thanked her gratefully and asked if she could give him some water with which to wash his face and hands before eating. Setting his breakfast on the ground beside him, she went out and presently returned with a gourd filled with cold, clear water from a little stream that ran sparkling and dancing down the mountainside, but a few yards away. He first took a long, deep draft, for he was suffering with feverish thirst, then laved face and hands, she handing him his own handkerchief, which had been washed in the stream and dried in the sun to use in place of a towel. He recognized it and glanced down at his person, saw that he was attired in the clothes he had on when taken, and that, as they were free from bloodstains, they too must have been washed by some kindly hand and replaced upon him after their cleansing. How much I owe you, he said, looking gratefully at her. No, not much, she answered, with shy modesty. Now eat, senor, or your breakfast will be cold. I must first rest a little, he returned, with a sigh of weariness as he fell back, exhausted upon his rude couch. She caught up several deer and bearskins that lay scattered about, rolled them together, and placed them as a pillow under his head. Then drawing two small objects from beneath that one on which he had been laying, she held them up to his gaze, saying, Do you value these, senor? Indeed I do, he cried, stretching out an eager hand, my precious little Bible, and my medicine case. I am thankful beyond expression that these have been preserved to me. How did it happen, Signora? She explained that she had seen them in the possession of his captor, had begged that they might be given to her, and the Indian, thinking them of little worth, had complied with her request. He poured out renewed thanks as he took up his Bible and turned over the pages gazing upon it all the while with loving, delighted eyes. "'An English book, is it not?' she asked, watching him with mingled surprise and curiosity. "'Yes,' he said, "'the book of books, God's own holy word. You have read it in Spanish, senora?' "'The Bible? We are not allowed to touch it. Our church forbids. I never saw one before,' she said, as she gazed upon it with a kind of odd curiosity and interest. A Catholic, he thought. Perhaps it was for her sake I was sent here. If life be spared me, I will, with God's help, do my best for her. She broke in upon his thoughts. Come, senor, eat, or your fish will be quite cold. When Juanita left him, carrying away with her the remains of his repast, an old squaw paid him a short visit looking curiously at him and grunting out several questions which were utterly unintelligible to him. He could only shake his head and feebly sign to her that he did not understand. 
She left him, and he took up his book, but found the light was not sufficient to enable him to read, for it was a very small edition which he had been accustomed to carry in his pocket. He was heartily glad when Juanita again appeared, this time with the moccasin she was embroidering in her hand, and seated herself at his side. I am stronger today, Signora, he said, and can listen and talk. Tell me of yourself. To that she answered briefly that she was an orphan, both parents having died while she was yet a mere infant, that she had lived in the family of an uncle, where she was made to feel her poverty and dependence, and her life rendered far from happy, that some months ago the Indians had made a raid upon her uncle's ranch, killed him and all his family, and had carried her off a prisoner to this mountain fastness, and that she had been adopted by one of their chiefs, Thundercloud, and had no hope of any better fate than a life spent among the savages. Too sad a fate for one so beautiful, Signora, Rupert said. But do not despair. God, who rescued Daniel from the lion's den, and Jonah from the belly of the well, can save us also, even from this stronghold of our fierce foe. I know nothing of the occurrences you speak of, she said, and I dare not venture to address any petition directly to the great God. But I pray daily to the Blessed Virgin and the saints to have pity upon a poor, friendless girl and restore me to my country and my people. Though, alas, I know not of one in whose veins flows a single drop of my blood. Ah, Signora, replied Rupert, you need not fear to approach the great God in the name of his dear Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He bids us do so and tells us that he is the bearer and answerer of prayers. He paused, closed his eyes, and lifted up his heart in silent supplication for her and for himself. She thought he slept and sat very quietly, busy with her embroidery, and waiting for him to awake again. At length he opened his eyes and asked her if she knew what fate the Indians had reserved for him. She told him a council had been held while he lay unconscious from his wounds that there was a heated discussion, some of the braves being set upon putting him to a torturing death, while others would have held him for ransom. But finally, Thundercloud, whose shot had brought him to the ground, had claimed him as his particular property and declared his intention to adopt him as his son. So, she concluded, you, senor, need have no fear of being slain by any of the tribe unless caught in an attempt to escape. God be praised, he cries, with clasped hands and uplifted eyes, for life is sweet so long as there is a possibility of future restoration to home and dear ones. You will attempt to escape? she asked with a look of apprehension. It will be very dangerous, senor, for they are terribly fierce, these Apaches. He looked at her with a faint smile. I am far too weak to think of it now. But one day, when I have recovered my health and strength, I may find an opportunity. And I shall be left alone with them as before, she said, with a touchingly mournful candid in the, her exquisite voice. You may fly also, Signora, he answered. I think it is to you I owe my life, for have you not been my faithful nurse through I know not how long a sickness? 
then how could I be so ungrateful as to leave you here in captivity while I seek home and freedom for myself? You have home and kindred, father and mother, perhaps, senor? She asked inquiringly, the soft eye she fixed upon his face, wistful and dim with unshed tears. Ah, he answered with emotion, the thought of their anguish when they shall learn my fate doubles my distress. Then, she sighed, it is better to be alone in the world like me, with none to care whether you live or die. Nay, sweet lady, there is one who cares very much, though he has known you so short a time, he said with a grateful look, one who would feel doubly desolate were you to leave him here alone with his captors. End of chapter 15th